0: August 29, 2005, 9.47 a.m., Lieutenant General Russell Honore touches down in a New Orleans that's virtually unrecognizable. The general, a Louisiana native and a self-described African-American Creole, has been called in to command more than 20,000 federal troops assigned to Joint Task Force Katrina. His mission?
1: do a search and rescue, keeping people alive, conduct evacuation, provide food and water. I can tell we can evacuate the city and get people out of the flood zone.
0: More than 50 of the city's levees and flood walls have failed. Entire neighborhoods are underwater. Hundreds of people have lost their lives and hundreds more are trapped in their homes at risk of drowning, hypothermia, and starvation. But it's not until Honoré arrives at the Superdome, where thousands are taking shelter, that he grasps the magnitude of the disaster.
1: And you saw those people standing around the Superdome, and you said to yourself, what? Oh, my God. How did this happen? But let's get it fixed.
0: But before he can fix New Orleans, he's got to make it safe, or so he's been led to believe. It began in plain sight. Residents trying to shatter windows and climb into stores. The looting broke wide open at this Walmart in New Orleans. Stolen goods... Journalists and public officials are reporting widespread looting and violence. The nightly news shows hoodlums ransacking stores. Louisiana Governor Kathleen Blanco tells one reporter, what angers me the most is that disasters like this often bring out the worst in people.
2: Thank you so much, brother. We appreciate everything. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. We need to see you, man. Thanks.
0: But as he travels through the city, General Honoré finds a different reality. In neighborhood after neighborhood, he sees what he calls the patience of the poor. The vast majority of affected people are making do in their homes or shelters, calmly waiting for help.
1: And in some cases, yes, uh, there was some uh, people who went
0: and got food and water and went got a mattress to put grandma on. But I, I call that more of an act of a survival than I do looting. So imagine the general's horror when Governor Blanco warns New Orleanians that the federal force's assault weapons are locked and loaded. These troops know how to shoot and kill, she says. They are more than willing to do so if necessary, and I expect they will. For Honoré, it's exactly the wrong message, both for the suffering city and for the troops under Let his down. command. Let us down, damn it! On a broad boulevard, the general strides in front of a row of jittery soldiers, ordering them to stand down. To the embattled people of New Orleans, the raging Cajun becomes a hero. For journalist and historian Rutger Bregman, what General Honore uncovers in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina is a fundamental misunderstanding of human nature. Desperation and fear are mistaken for criminality. A humanitarian crisis is misinterpreted as a public security crisis. And these mistakes contribute to a tentative, disorganized, and ultimately inadequate response. Bregman says it's a textbook example of how we've come to expect the worst of our fellow humans and of ourselves, and it keeps us from doing what needs to be done. The LinkedIn Podcast Network
2: is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at tiaa.org/promises pay off.
0: From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club with Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Kane, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant to connect people to some of the boldest thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, why we humans are better than we think. Hurricane Katrina was hardly the first time journalists and political leaders misjudged the situation by assuming the worst about people. Our society is largely built on the assumption that we're all a broken stoplight away from reverting to our animal selves. It's what we've come to call realism. Rutger Bregman thinks that kind of realism is, well, unrealistic. And not because he thinks we can learn to do better, but because we are better. It's the way we evolved— At least that's the case he makes in his new bestseller, Humankind A Hopeful History. Bregman is just 32, but he's already written five books on history, philosophy, and economics. His last one, Utopia for Realists, was also a bestseller. In it, he argues for a 15 hour work week and one of my personal favorites, basic income for every citizen. If you don't know his books, you might have seen a viral video of him scolding the billionaires at Davos last year for dodging their taxes. His conversation partner today is Next Big Idea Club curator Daniel Pink. Dan has written six books on business and human behavior. He's calling in from Pink, Inc. World Headquarters, aka his home office at a renovated garage in Washington, D.C. Rutger is at his home in the Netherlands. I feel lucky to get to listen in.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm delighted to be joined today by Rutger Bregman, author of Humankind, A Hopeful History. What a fascinating book. I had the good fortune of reading this book in the galleys uh, before it came out, and I was just blown away. So I've got a lot of questions for you, Rutger. Mm -hmm. Let me just start with, I think, the most obvious and salient question for the Next Big Idea Club, which is your book has a big idea. Tell us what that big idea is.
2: Okay. So the big idea is that deep down, most people are pretty decent. That's it, basically. (laughs) Deep down, most people are pretty decent.
1: So you can say it in a few words. Now, for a lot of us hearing that, Mm -hmm. the immediate response is, that's nice. That's a lovely sentiment. We appreciate your Dutch gentility here, but Mm -hmm. that's not, here's the word you're waiting for, Rutger, that's not realistic.
2: Exactly. So that's, what I'm trying to do in this book. I'm trying to redefine what it means to be a realist. So often we equate realism with pessimism or cynicism. What I'm trying to show in this book is that it's actually much more realistic, much more scientific to believe in the good of humanity, or at least our potential for kindness and cooperation, and that even this could be our true superpower as a species. It might even be the reason why we conquered the globe and why, you know, other hominid species like the Neanderthals are gone. So, yes, that's, that's the, one of the central things that I try to do in this book is to redefine what it means to be a realist.
1: Right. And it's a jarring idea in many ways for a lot of us because so much of our social structures are mm-hmm. built on the opposite presumption. We have governments and police forces mm-hmm. designed to rein us in. We have contract law to prevent us from hoodwinking each other. And what I found fascinating about this book is that if that underlying premise is wrong, then everything is up for grabs. Yes, exactly. And so there's also this idea that if our underlying premise is wrong and we continue to abide by it, that we create a self-fulfilling prophecy.
2: Yes, yes. So people may think, oh, this guy's written a nice, warm cuddly book about human kindness isn't that nice well actually it's a really dangerous book i think so be aware What's dangerous about it? <laughs> well if you really think it through this idea then it has some quite radical implications for how we organize our whole society because if you and i can actually trust each other if we can trust most people around us then maybe we don't need all that hierarchy and inequality hmm. right so i think that the prevailing ideology of those in power for centuries has been cynicism, right? Because cynicism is in the interest of those in power. If we cannot trust each other, then we need them. Then we need the monarchs, and the CEOs, and the queens, and the princes, and the managers, et cetera, et cetera. We need to be kept in check. Someone needs to control us so that we don't ever go at each other, so that we don't have some kind of war of all against all, right? So yeah. so I think a darker view of human nature has been used for a very long time as a way to legitimize power. So if you turn that around, then obviously, yeah, you can ask yourself the question, can't we just move to a much more democratic or genuinely egalitarian society? That is, I think, one of the most important implications of updating your view of human nature to a more realistic view
1: we've just heard the story of what really happened in the aftermath of hurricane katrina Mm -hmm. why did you include that in the book
2: well we often think and maybe this is because we've seen too many hollywood movies that during times of crisis people you know just panic start looting, start plundering, and behave in a really horrible way, especially after disasters like an earthquake or or a tsunami or something like that. And this was also, you know, what they told us, what especially the news media told us in 2005 after Katrina. You know, all these stories about looting and plundering and violence and snipers taking aim at people and you name it. It was only later when the scientists came in and the, the real proper research that they found out that pretty much the opposite had happened. You know, that most of these stories were rumors, that didn't really happen, and that there's been this explosion of altruism and cooperation. And we now have 700 case studies from sociologists, more than 700 of tsunamis and earthquakes. And turns out wherever this happens, wherever in the world, people start cooperating on a massive scale. It's a little bit as if you push a reset button in someone's brain and people go back to their better selves. Crisis reveal the best in our natures. So we start just cooperating and working together.
1: This is an extraordinarily multidisciplinary book. That's one of the things I really like about it. But a lot of your realism is based on uh, evolutionary science. Tell us why, if you really get into the guts of evolutionary science, what is real in human nature is something different from what we suppose to be real in human nature.
2: hmm One of the most important questions that scientists have been asking for a very long time is why us so why that we conquer the globe why are we the ones who built pyramids and cathedrals and and spaceships why not the neanderthals why not the bonobos or the chimpanzees you know what makes us as a species so special it's not that we're so, so smart. It's not that we're so strong either. But what really distinguishes us is that we have this extraordinary capacity to cooperate. So there's one evolutionary biologist, Brian Hare, who calls this survival of the friendliest. Which means that for millennia, it was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids and so had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. Because if you think about it, I mean, for 95% of our history we were nomadic hunter gatherers, And we had to survive in a very tough environment in, during the Ice Age, for example. And back then, if you wanted to survive, well, collecting a lot of possessions, that wasn't very useful. You needed to collect a lot of friends because friends helped you through tough times. That was like the real capital you could amass in your life, having as many friends as possible. So that was an evolutionary advantage as well. And this is, I, th- I think, what really distinguishes us and what's our true superpower right right
1: now let's take this notion so we're looking at human beings forged in this certain but based on the the imperatives of evolution that is pushing us to be friendlier to be more cooperative to be more social to some extent to be more generous now let's take that nature as it's formed in evolution and let's transport it to the moment. And and when I say the moment, I mean this particular moment that we're in, this mm. bizarre historic moment that we're in right now. What are your thoughts generally on how individuals, societies and governments are responding to the COVID-19 pandemic?
2: I think that the real headline, the big headline of the COVID crisis is there's been an explosion of cooperation. You know, if you just zoom out a little bit, what you see yeah. is billions of people quite radically changing their lifestyle to stop the virus from spreading further. You know, I don't think it has ever happened on a scale like this in all of world history that so many people so quickly change the way they live their lives. And often, you know, not just to protect themselves, but to protect, you know, strangers and or the vulnerable elderly. And um, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it's it's early to say and you know I'm a historian mm. I always like to wait for like at least 10 years before I give my comments on a situation right. but right. it wouldn't surprise me if actually sociologists will later find that actually people became more resilient during this time. Yeah. You know I start the book with a story of what happened in 1939-1940 when elites in Britain in the UK we really worried that once the bombs, the German bombs would start falling on London and other British cities, that people would just panic, go nuts, that they would start plundering, looting, that the veneer of thi- civilization is very thin. And that, you know, as soon as we end up in a crisis, that people start to behave in a really horrible way and that, you know, the army couldn't even start fighting because they would have their hands full controlling their own population. Now, what happened is pretty much the opposite. So there was sort of a spirit of keep calm and carry on that dawned over Britain. And, you know, people posted really funny and dry signs uh, in front of their shops, like uh, more open than usual, you know, after they've been bombed, that kind of thing. And, uh, And so the experts were completely wrong, including Churchill, who also assumed the worst in his own citizens. So elites, when they think about human nature, they often look in the mirror and they assume that other people are like them you know this is really what i saw happening especially in the first couple of months of of the COVID crisis is that again elites underestimated the resilience of ordinary people so this is sort of the irony that you see so many times in history
1: i expand on that a little bit because one of the things that changed my view over the last few years, it, you know, sort of being indoctrinated on this idea that human beings are inherently selfish mm-hmm. and coming around to what I think is a more accurate belief based on your work, based on, say, John Haidt's work, et cetera, mm. that humans are not selfish, but groupish. Mm. And so this need to affiliate and cooperate isn't necessarily embracing the entire world. It's often more about embracing our own in group.
2: This is really the big paradox at the heart of my book is that on the one hand, I argue that. We have evolved to be friendly, but on the other hand, this friendliness, this the, our yearning for connection with other people is often exactly the problem. We very often do the most horrible things, actually, in the name of comradeship and of friendship and of loyalty, but it doesn't have to be this way. And we also have a really great capacity, actually, to connect with strangers or with people who are not from our own group, especially if we can meet each other. So we have been designed for face-to-face interaction. In the Stone Age, there was no Twitter, there was no Facebook, there was no television. We could see each other, we could see each other blush, we could look at each other in the eye, et cetera. And we now know from uh, some really interesting anthropological evidence that probably the networks, the social networks of hunter-gatherers were quite large. So they didn't just live in these small groups of hunters and gatherers, but actually, you know, could meet over a thousand people over their lifetimes. Which also, I mean... That must have basically been the case, because how could we ever have conquered the globe if we didn't meet a lot of people to learn from, right? Individually, human beings are not that special, but collectively, we've got a huge collective brain.
0: So cooperation and friendliness played a major role in human evolution. And our ability to learn from each other is a key part of why our species has been so successful. Given all that, you'd think we would have shared the good news about human nature. So what's with the persistent negative self-image? why do we insist on believing what's patently untrue?
2: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan... TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at tiaa.org/promises pay off.
0: Peter Warner is supposed to follow in his father's footsteps. His dad, Arthur, is a wealthy Australian industrialist who headed the Rand Corporation in the 1930s, and he's groomed his son for a career in business. But Peter has other ideas. He has an adventurous spirit he especially loves to sail. So at 17, he leaves home to explore the world by sea. He eventually earns a captain's certificate and makes plans to launch his own fishing fleet in the South Pacific. In the winter of 1966, Peter is sailing through the waters near Fiji when he spots a small island in the distance. Looking through binoculars, he notices patches of burnt vegetation on the cliffs. As he approaches, he's surprised to see a group of wild-looking young men waving and calling from the rocky shore. 20 minutes later, Peter's on shore listening to an incredible story. The boys tell him they're from Tonga, about 500 miles away. 15 months ago, they snuck out of their strict Anglican boarding school and stole a fishing boat for a bit of harmless mischief. But none of them were experienced sailors. They quickly lost their bearings and drifted into a storm. The storm destroyed their sail and rudder. They drifted for eight days with no food or water. Finally, they spied an island in the distance and paddled furiously toward shore. The island was deserted. The boys knew little about survival, so they immediately agreed to work together. Over time, they taught themselves to hunt and to fashion tools from driftwood and other materials. When they disagreed about something, they had a discussion and took a vote. By the time Peter Warner finds them, the boys have established a peaceful, fully functioning community. They're in excellent spirits and peak physical shape. They're happy to go home, but they're hardly desperate. Are we ever going home? Of course we are. The boys' story is uncannily similar to William Golding's 1954 novel, Lord of the Flies. A group of schoolboys, stranded on a deserted island, forced to survive on their wits. But that's where the similarity ends. In the novel, the boys are selfish and violent and cruel. They splinter into rival groups, the strong, lorded over the weak.
2: We can't have kids stealing and just running wild.
0: have to have stricter rules. There are at least two movie versions, and the book is still a staple of high school English classes. Exhibit A for the realist argument that when social controls come off, people quickly descend into savagery. Golding won the Nobel Prize. But Lord of the Flies is fiction, a work of the imagination. Why do we prefer it to the true one?
1: I want you to start a business called the Bregman Debunking Unit, because (laughs) so much of the book debunks things that I think educated Westerners Mm. take for granted. And I want to go through some of these because I think it's really revealing. Mm. So in one of the most fascinating sections of the book, you uncover through some good detective work, a real life example of The Lord of the Flies. Describe what their lives were like on that island. It, it wasn't the case of Piggy and whatever the other characters were yeah, and Ralph, Lord yes. of the Flies, you know, mm-hmm. brutalizing each other. It was the exact opposite. I mean, set the scene. What did it look like there?
2: Well, they worked in teams, teams of two. Two to be on the lookout for ships, to tend to the garden, and two to cook. Uh, sometimes they, they ended up in fights. I mean, that happens. They're teenagers. They're humans, like, like all of us. Uh, But then what they would do is that one would go to one side of the island, the other would go to the other side of the island, they would cool off a little bit, come back and say sorry. Uh, They made a lot of music. They uh, made their own uh, guitar from, you know, some of the drift route from the the ship. They had their own gym with curious (laughs) body weights. They had a badminton court. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't tough for them. You know, they had really tough times. At one point, actually, one of the boys broke a leg. But they managed to heal that with traditional medicine. So yeah, when this captain, Peter Warner, found them in 1966, he found six boys that were in perfect health.
1: They cooperated with each other. They took care of each other. They had, I mean, the thing that amazed me, Rutger, was that they had like a, like a meal schedule. You mm-hmm. know, Who's gonna cook and what are they gonna make? I mean, it was just, it's kind of extraordinary. Left to their own devices on an abandoned island, this small group of teenage boys, stepped up and survived in as noble and heartwarming a way as you could possibly imagine. And that is the real story.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so if millions of kids around the globe still have to read Lord of the Flies in school, which is fine, I think I think it's still a good novel, but then let's please also tell them about the one time yeah. that we know of yeah. that real kids shipwrecked on a real island because that's a very different kind of story.
1: Okay, so let's march through another Project from the uh, Bregman Debunking Unit, which um, is another, which is a staple of sociology and anthropology classes. Which is what happened on Easter Island. Hmm. So tell us what we think happened, and then tell us what really happened.
2: So the standard story says that here you have this island that is incredibly remote. You know, the most remote place in the whole world, basically, uh, where in the 18th century, the beginning of the 18th century, Dutch explorers discovered this lost civilization that was basically already dying when they found it. They did see these extraordinary statues. We've all seen them, you know, the so-called moai, huge mm-hmm. statues mm-hmm. and heads, etc. But they, they found a population that was, you know, hungry, that was poor, and that was clearly not able to actually create these statues. So the, the question was, who made these things and how did they do it? And, and the story that became very popular is that they had committed eco-suicide. That at one time there was a huge forest on the island, there were a lot of trees, but then they became so obsessed with building all these statues that they had to cut all the trees to transport the statues and to erect them. That sometime, you know, all the trees were gone, the soil started to erode and um, agriculture production went down and people became really hungry. And so then they started dying of hunger. A civil war broke out. They became cannibals. And so when the first European explorers arrived, they discovered a civilization that was basically already dying.
1: But what's the real
2: story? (laughs) So (laughs) what's interesting is that in the past, I'd say 10 to 15 years, there's a new generation of archaeologists who's taken another look at the evidence. And this is really like a a detective. It's like a, a true crime story where you have to look at all the pieces of evidence, right? You have to look at the skeletons that have been excavated, you have to look at, you know, the oral traditions, the stories that people have been telling for a very long time. And now a very different story has emerged. Actually, there are very few signs of violence in the archaeological record, so very few signs of, of weapons. We For a very long time, we believed that so-called mata'a, which is sort of kn- knives, were being used to for, by these people to slaughter each other. Now uh, archaeologists think that these were actually, these weren't really weapons, but more like kitchen. And knives, hmm. you know, used to if you want to eat a banana or something like that. And so, most importantly, they've actually discovered that agriculture production went up, and there was no civil war, and there there were not thousands of people who've been killed by other people because the population probably has always been small, only like around to three thousand people at max. So. Yeah, all these so- supposed killers have a pretty great alibi. They never existed. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's really extraordinary that the real story of Easter Island, according to the recent evidence, is not a story of a civilization killing itself, but a story of hope. Now, why is this important? Because Easter Island has been used for a very long time as a metaphor for our own future, you know? Exactly. Easter Island, these people, they were alone on an island. They didn't have ships to take them away. We are alone on this planet. We don't have rocket ships to all start living on Mars. So often Easter Island is used as a metaphor for what we are doing to our own planet, you know, with climate change and the extinction of species. Now, I am incredibly worried about both of these things. But I do worry that sometimes environmental activists or you know thinkers and writers can become too, cynic, uh, too cynical, and, and that they start describing our species as a plague or, or you know some kind of virus that is just destroying everything. And then they underestimate the resilience we also have. We are really good at letting problems grow on an exponential scale, but solutions can grow on an exponential scale as well. And if you look at the past five years, and uh, you, if you look at both the political and the technological progress in the fight against climate change... I'm not saying you have to be an optimist, Mm -hmm. but there are good reasons to be hopeful.
1: So I I want to spend a couple more uh, minutes on this debunking unit because, okay, so Mm. you've destroyed my junior high English class. Mm. You've destroyed my college anthropology class. Mm. Now, uh, the thing that you really blew up was my freshman year university introductory to psychology class, because Mm. that class, when I took it a while ago, was sort of a greatest hits of psychological mm. research. So we mm-hmm. learned all about human nature in that in that research. And of course, we learned that if you take people and put them in a basement and assign some of them to be prison guards and some of them to be prisoners mm. that in a snap of a finger they will assume their roles in the most brutal way possible. I'm Mm. talking, of course, about the Stanford Prison Experiments, which has been a staple of introductory psychology courses for really 40 years, Mm. except it's not true,
2: as you say. Tell us about that. There are some really big problems, and I think that the problems with the Stanford Prison Experiment are so big that actually we need to remove it from, from the textbooks. We now know, based on... The evidence from the archives, because this is what has happened. You know, the archives have opened up, and we we can now take a look behind the scenes of these really famous social psychology experiments from the sixties and the seventies. And we now know that Philip Zimbardo, the psychologist who who did this study, he and his co-researchers they specifically instructed these students to behave like monsters and to be as sadistic as possible. Some of them were not, you know. Trying hard enough and they were pushed, you know, do better, try harder. Why? Because Zimbardo wanted specific results. And he said this, or one of his researchers said this to the participants is that because some of the participants said, you know, I don't want to abuse these these prisoners. That's not who I am. Let's just sit and play cards or something like that, drink tea together. But then they said, no, you got to do this because we need these results because then we can go to the press and say, look, prisons are horrible environments. We need to reform the whole thing. And so that's what happened. Very quickly after the experiment had ended, Zimbardo went to the press and it became one of the most famous studies in all psychology. You know, for 50 years, millions and millions of students around the globe have heard about the Stanford Prison Experiment. And it is, you know, it's not science, to be honest. It's really not science.
0: The Stanford Prison Experiment, Easter Island, Lord of the Flies, just a few of the stories we tell as if true that reinforce false ideas about human nature. So what can we do to change the narrative? From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors. I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. To read Rutger Bregman's Humankind is to wonder why we persist, despite so much compelling evidence, in seeing ourselves in the darkest of lights. My friend Dan Pink has a pretty rosy view of human nature, but he knows that our social institutions don't always reflect the best of us. He asks Rutger if maybe the problem is the way we've organized our storytelling as a for-profit business competing for eyeballs and ears.
2: So let's first make a distinction between the news and journalism. Okay. I think that good independent journalism is incredibly important. So please, especially right now, subscribe to an important publication uh, that, you know, tries to protect our democracy. It's it's really important to, to keep those in power in check, to speak truth to power. But then the news is, is something different. The news is mostly about exceptions, about things that go wrong, and it tends to be about sensational things, about incidents. And I think that the news is actually not very helpful. It, it It's more like a drug that tends to poison the conversation or poisons our, our democracies journalism is or at least good constructive journalism helps you to zoom out a little bit and so it helps you to focus on the you know the really important structural forces that govern our lives sometimes for the good sometimes for the better so you'll learn that on the one hand we've made extraordinary progress in the past couple of decades we are richer and healthier than ever you know and in the fight against child mortality or diseases we've made a lot of progress but then on the other hand there are real big things to worry about as well such as climate change now the question about financing is interesting because if you, for example, compare, you know, the Netherlands where we have more public financing of journalism to the US and, and the UK, where it's more commercial financing of journalism. I think that the public model, you know, often results in better, more nuanced journalism. I think that's that's true because you don't have to go for the clicks all the time. You don't have to you're not reliant on advertisers, et cetera, et cetera. But then still you know, often you end up with the same problems because actually you still want to have the clicks because you're, I mean, still your superior is going to judge you on that. I'm very excited about a new movement in journalism, which is constructive journalism. Constructive journalism is not the same as positive news. It's not mm-hmm. like, oh, yesterday a panda was born in the zoo. You know, that's not, <laughs> that. that's silly, I think. Constructive journalism is about focusing on the structural forces that govern our lives and then also talking about the solutions to our problem and following those people who are working on the on the problem right and coming up with new and interesting ideas i guess that's what i'm excited about
1: yeah yeah i mean it seems like an, another key takeaway from the book is that we need to find a better way to distribute higher quality information mm. uh, we also have this problem with like low quality information circulating what's a way that we can get truer ideas circulating? I know that's a tough question, but is there something that we can do to get more of these higher quality ideas circulating? Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, I I do think there is a phenomenon in the information ecosystem Mm -hmm. that bad is always stronger than good. Yes. And so is there a way for good to fight back? So it's it's hard.
2: I recognize that. I mean, why do we so often believe that most people are selfish even though there's such powerful evidence that we're really not well i've already talked about the news industry i talked about this very deep idea within western culture you know the veneer theory that our civilization is only a thin veneer that goes back all the way to the ancient greeks a very old idea i talked about you know why this is in the interest of those in power right cynicism is their prevailing ideology and it has yeah. been for a very long time but then finally, you also have to recognize that it's also within ourselves. Psychologists call this the negativity bias. Right. The truth is that evil is stronger than good. You know, like evil is more powerful than good. But, and this is the good news, the good is in the majority. There's so much more good mm. out there than evil. So this is what you see again and again. If you think, for example, about how you top on autocratic regime, you know, how? what kind of protest is more, more successful. For a long time, researchers thought that violent protest is more successful. But then they started doing the math and building this database. And Erica Chenoweth is a sociologist who did this research. She actually found that peaceful protest movements are like two or three times more effective. And why? Well, the reason is they draw in a lot more people. On average, about 11 times more. And that makes sense if you think about it. Right, You you do not only draw in like, like young men with too much testosterone, but men, women, rich, poor, young, old, right? They all come together in this massive protest movement. And I think actually that's what's been happening in the US. You know, the, one of the biggest protests in, in, in all of American history. And um, I think it's one of the reasons to be uh, hopeful uh, in this moment. So yes, on the one hand, evil is stronger, but good can win when it's in the majority with an overwhelming force. That is the mechanism that you see again and again.
1: Toward the end of the book, you sketch a vision of what government and the political economy Hmm. might look like. Give us a a quick description of that.
2: So, what you assume in other people is what you get out of them. Our view of human nature tends to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And for a very long time, our institutions have been designed around the notion of selfishness. Then you get schools with a quite hierarchical system where you sort of try to push knowledge into people's brains uh into the brains of kids you get workplaces that are quite hierarchical as well where managers decide what what needs to be done and you don't really rely on the intrinsic motivation of employees and uh yeah the same is true for prisons right you really don't believe in the goodness of of your prisoners so yeah you get these warehouses where they don't have the ability to do anything or develop themselves if you turn this around you get completely different institutions you get schools where kids get much more freedom to explore to create to play you get workplaces with much less hierarchy where you work with self-directed teams where you really rely on the intrinsic motivation people do their work because they believe in their work because they want to contribute um And one of the most radical examples in the book is uh, the Norwegian prison system, where they even do this with prisoners. Norwegian prisons, the the inmates get the freedom to socialize with the guards. It's it's remarkable. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And and, and, and to make music. And it works, you know, it has the lowest recidivism rate in, in the whole world, the Norwegian criminal justice system. The lowest chance that someone will commit another crime once he or she gets out of prison. It's pretty much the opposite of the way things are done in the U.S., So that's what I mean when I said at the beginning of our conversation that this is a revolutionary idea. It has really radical implications for how we organize our society.
1: There's a particular policy you're fond of, uh, which we've heard a lot about in the United States, uh, really in the last year, which is a universal basic income. Now, it makes intuitive sense that someone having a few extra dollars in their pocket would would like that. Uh, but, Mm -hmm. But you think, again, that this is actually more, to use your word, more radical, more transformative. Explain that.
2: Yeah. My previous book, Utopia for Realists, one of the main ideas in there was universal basic income. I wrote it in 2014 when it was, I think, not a very famous idea. Not, Uh, And yeah, it was a quite obscure idea. Now it's become much more famous, mainly thanks to Andrew Yang and his presidential campaign. And um, what I experienced while I was promoting the book and talking about it with readers is that people were interested in the scientific evidence because there have been many experiments with basic income where you know if you give people money poor people money turns out it's a great medicine you know poverty is not a lack of character it's a lack of cash as i like to say Healthcare costs go down crime goes down kids do much better in school people find new jobs they start new companies et cetera. Et cetera. so they were interested in the scientific evidence but Every single time, you know, when I was discussing that, that book with readers that at some point after 30 or 40 minutes, someone would say, yeah, but what about human nature? Mm. You know, isn't it true that in the end people are just selfish and, you know, lazy and they'll, you know, maybe this will work on a local scale on, on on this particular place in this particular country at that particular moment in time. But you know, in the U S this will never work in the world. This will never work because human nature, and then I started to realize that I had to dig a little bit deeper to show that actually it is entirely logical that universal basic income works because it's built on a realistic understanding of who people are, you know, what kind of creatures we are.
1: So I want to end by addressing the risks of cynicism and despair in the face of huge and complex problems. So you mm-hmm. talking about the climate crisis, you write, and I'm going to quote, quote, From the book right now. My fear is that their cynicism can become a self-fulfilling prophecy, a nocebo that paralyzes us with despair while temperatures climb unabated. The climate movement too could use a new realism. Mm -hmm. What would that look like?
2: Well, let's first say that cynicism is a gift to those in power. You know, it's really what they want you to be. Because people who are cynics, they're just easier to rule. They don't really rise and revolt they don't go against the oppression or the hierarchy or the racism or whatever so hope is very dangerous to those in power and that's why i think not optimism but hope is something of a moral duty hope impels you to act hope is about the possibility of change about the possibility of building a different kind of world and actually i think that's what history is also about It's why I think that history is the most subversive of all the social sciences. You know, it just shows you that things can be different and that there's nothing inevitable about the way we structured our society right now. This is also interesting, actually, about studying American history. If you think about all these really exciting ideas like, you know, the prisons from Norway or basic income. These are originally quite American ideas, actually. So in the 60s, it was the Americans you know, who first experimented with these kind of revolutionary prisons. And at the beginning of the 70s, it was Richard Nixon, of all people, who almost implemented a modest basic income in the U.S. So there's a real tradition here to reconnect with. Now, why I think this is important is because we're now at a moment of time in, in, in history where it seems as in a way we're dancing on top of a volcano on the one hand, we've made extraordinary progress, right? We are richer, wealthier, and healthier than ever. But then if you look at the challenges that lie ahead, if you look at the kind of mobilization that we need in order to face the climate crisis, it is so much more than people, most people realize. You know, I, I often think that people on the right are often naive about climate science, right? They, they tend to think that, oh, the science is not trustworthy. Well, I'm afraid it is. And people on the left, they tend to be naive about climate action. You know, they tend to underestimate just how much needs to be done if you really want to halve emissions in 2030 and move to a zero carbon economy in 2050. We need to do something that's never been done before during peacetime in all of world history. So if you're a moderate right now, like a little bit of a centrist in the middle, I, I mean, I love moderates and centrists and I love reasonableness and I love nuance, but it's simply not realistic. To be that right now, because just simply the changes that this time is calling for are so radical. And um, what gives me hope is that there's a new generation of often younger people who realize that really realize that and if you look at the past 10 years we've seen some incredible change we've seen ideas that used to be dismissed as unreasonable and realistic we've seen them moving into the mainstream higher taxes on the rich universal basic income a green new deal you name it all these ideas were seen as quite unrealistic and are taken seriously so that gives me hope and we need that we need hope
1: and as you say very compellingly hope is a moral duty. It is the quintessential big idea. Uh, Rutger, thanks for being with us.
2: Thanks for having me, Dan.
0: From Wondery, this is the next big idea. If you have thoughts about Humankind or any of the other books in our series, we'd love you to join the conversation with me, Daniel Pink, Rutger Bregman, and other writers at nextbigideaclub.com. It's a lively community of lifelong learners where you can interact with top nonfiction writers and get audio, video, and text summaries of their big ideas. Sign up for three months free at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. Special thanks this week to Rutger Bregman. His book, Humankind, A Hopeful History, is available wherever books are sold, or you can get a copy for free when you join us at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. Thanks also to curator Daniel Pink for conducting the interview. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. This episode was written by Eamon Doyle, sound designed by Jake Gorski. Our associate producer is Caleb Bissinger. Our series producer is Michael Kovnay. Senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louis, and Hernan Lopez for Wondery.